was quick. There wasn't like a, sh you know, shake your neighbor's hand thing. We're going to get going and get started because there's just a lot happening this morning. There's a lot to let you know about. My name is Amy. If you're new here this morning, we have a gift for you. Uh, it is at the info booth, and so don't forget that it is just for you. And when I say new, I don't mean brand new. If you're visiting or if you've maybe been here off and on through the summer, um, that gift is also for you as well. Uh, we do have junior high service next door. Uh, we have our children's church, and then we have our family room over here um, for people who don't want to go to those other two places. Um, but they want to come in here and be a part of what's happening here. So all of those are for you. There's also information in your seat pocket in front of you. And I want to make sure you know what's going on this fall. I know we're still in the summer. I know school started for some of you. And I don't want to shrink down your last couple weeks of August. Uh, but we do have things happening. Uh, one of those things that's happening is our Awana program. So if you're not familiar, this program is for preschool age all the way up through high school. And they take a break during the summer because they follow the school calendar. So they are starting back up on Tuesdays uh, in two weeks. So right after Labor Day. If you're not familiar with the program, we are looking for volunteers specifically for our TNT group. This is third through fifth grade. So it's a great age. If you've been thinking about it, I know some of you have and haven't signed up. Uh, we are starting in a couple weeks. And if you want to get plugged in, we, you could just show up and we'll find a spot for you. Uh, something else happening uh, in fall. Okay, there's several things. Uh, we have a men's barbecue. Yes, specifically for men, this is a very special time where you gather and you eat, because this is what, I don't know what else you do there. But I think also there's, there's going to be, Mike Harrison's going to be there. He heads up our men's ministry. Um, he heads up our, our, uh, our breakfast that comes twice a month. That's happening actually that day as well. But later in the afternoon, you can uh, join at the address listed above, and there is food and fellowship and an opportunity for you men to know what's going on in the men's ministry and what's going to go on throughout the rest of the year. So that's in September. Right after that, our women's retreat happens. It happens every year in September. Yes, we're very excited. Thank you for being excited. Um, yes, Tammy. And so we have this uh, at Zephyr Point. Um, it's the third weekend, uh, I think, in, in uh, September. And we are taking registration now. So at the info booth, there's the packet, the registration form. But if I use the word registration, that means that you have an opportunity to also use our app and sign up online. So the men's barbecue has a registration. The women's retreat has a registration. And uh, our financial peace class, which we're going to offer as well, has a registration. And so it's easy access. You can still just do the old-fashioned call someone and say, hey, I want to come. You can do that too, but we're going to move forward in all, of, all that we do, and these things are on our app. Financial peace is actually happening. Pastor Wayne Hogue is going to be uh, leading that. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a debt-free program to get you debt-free and then to remain debt-free. So that's a class also happening in September. So there's lots going on, and there's even more. But I don't need to share this with you because one of our elders, John Drollinger, is going to come up, and he's going to introduce some things that uh, have happened, haven't happened here, I think, for a long time. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, I am not speaking today, just giving an announcement. We, have, we do have a lot going on this fall, as Amy's just shared. I can't believe that school is already starting again. Uh, we, I was just looking at the air quality index on my phone, and it's like 32 right now. I feel like August has been such an amazing month, 
and everybody is squeezing in last minute lake and river and biking and hiking. Uh, but as we turn to the fall season, this is where we really start to ramp up on our church calendar with everything Amy's just shared. And there's a really neat new opportunity that we have too, which is that our leadership team is going to be launching what we're kind of calling an equipping hour during second service here on Sunday mornings. You might have heard this referred to at churches as Sunday school or fellowship groups, but we were wanting to offer more opportunities to teach courses and have like more interactive kind of Sunday morning opportunities for fellowship and learning and training and our mission, like it says on the wall, is follow Jesus, make disciples. And there's, that means a lot. Part of it is, yes, reaching out in our community, inviting our neighbors to church, evangelizing the lost. But it also means taking existing disciples, believers, and equipping them and strengthening them and helping them understand more about our, our faith and beliefs. Um, so a couple opportunities that we have for that. Um, and by the way, this isn't intended to replace main service. The idea is that if you want to do one of these, they last as little as one week, maybe as many as six weeks, uh, that you would maybe probably come to first service and then attend an equipping hour second service. But, you know, we're not going to, like, check the roster or anything to make sure you're going to both services. Um, but it's not intended to replace main service, but... Um, it is just a great opportunity since we're already gathered together. So the first of these is going to be a new or welcome to Sierra Bible Church. This is happening September 11th, and it's basically for anybody that's new to our church family in the last two years or so. And there are a lot of you. Through the pandemic, there's so many people that came and went to Sierra Bible Church, new to the community, left the community exploring, and we were, as, as our leadership team prays through the church directory, we were looking at all these new names going, man, there's so many people that we don't know. So this is an opportunity for you to get acquainted with us. We'll have our staff pastors there. We'll have some of our leadership team there. They'll share opportunities that you can get plugged in and serve. Uh, they'll tell you all about our many things that happen throughout the week, like community groups, uh, mag groups, women's Bible studies, youth group. There's just so much going on that we thought it'd be worth once a year in the fall having this kind of new and welcome to SBC. The second thing is a six-week course called Fundamentals of the Faith, and this is something that I'm going to be teaching. Uh, Pastor Wayne has taught this in the past. Jesse has taught this in the past. And this is more interactive. If, if preaching is kind of a monologue experience, this is more of a teaching, interactive, dialogue type of learning environment. In fact, you actually download or stream messages from John MacArthur and then fill in this little workbook week after week, and we come together on Sundays to discuss it. So not only are you learning fundamentals of the faith, you're learning it with people alongside of you. So if you're new to the faith, this is perfect for you. If you're a young adult and going to college or university and just need to get your Christian worldview established, this is a great opportunity. Even if you're a mature believer, this is a great little book to take and disciple a new believer through. So maybe you want to come and get refreshed on some of the basics. Fundamentals of the Faith is perfect for that as well. So 
as part of my pitch, I want to close with just a little story. Uh, Chris, do you have that slide? Okay. <laughs> this is Pastor Jesse with my dad at the church picnic <laughs> about two weeks ago. So as you can see, Jesse comes a little shorter than my dad's shoulder. <laughs> Some of you had the chance to meet him. My dad is a former collegiate basketball player. He played for the Dallas Mavericks for a few seasons, but he had the privilege of playing for legendary coach John Wooden at UCLA. And uh, John Wooden is known for fundamentals. And for some of you who don't know John Wooden, let me just read, because we're kind of getting into the next generation who's never heard of him. 88 consecutive victories, the next best is 60. 10 NCAA championships, the next best is four. Seven consecutive championships, 38 consecutive tournament victories, four undefeated full seasons of, of college basketball. He's the most winning basketball coach in any sport in history. And so growing up with my dad, who played for John Wooden, we'd hear some of these stories. And one of the ones I love the best is, what do you think they did on their first day of practice as a UCLA highly recruited, one of the best championship teams on earth? The first day of practice, believe it or not, is how to put your socks on right. How to put your socks on right. Their shoes in those days weren't as comfy, weren't as form-fitted as now, and you had a tendency to get blisters. And John Wooden wanted to win, and he did win. But to win, it required you score points. And to score points, it meant you needed to run their fast-break offense. And to do that, you needed to run a lot, and you needed to rebound and make the outlet pass. And if you wore shoes and got blisters, you would limp all over the court and not be able to do that. And so practice number one was how to put your socks on right so that you didn't get blisters and screw up the entire season. <laughs> this is how they won. So in some ways, Paul is similar. In 1 Corinthians 15, he brings us back to the resurrection and talks about how that's victory in Christ and understanding the gospel. And so some of you have blisters in your Christian life that are preventing you from being victorious. And we just want to go back to the fundamentals and get the basics down. And I think this will help you a lot to be more joyful, more successful, more fruitful, better believers, better parents, um, and better understanding of the gospel and just how to follow Christ successfully. So that's what's happening here in the fall. And uh, now it's my privilege to introduce a... a Man, I have a ton of respect for. Uh, you're in for a great message with Pastor Brad Beers. So come on up. Thanks. When you say nice things like that, I feel like we're supposed to hug on stage, but then I'm going to look like that thing. No, that's not going to work. It's bad for my ego. Hi. Um, it, uh, if you know me, it goes without saying that I'm about to say how happy I am to be here with you. It's still true. Let's go. If you need a Bible uh, and you forgot to bring one, raise your hand and some helpers will uh, put a Bible in your hand. Uh, feel free to use that one. If you brought your Bible, uh, turn it to Mark chapter 8. I get to continue in our series of Mark and we're going to dive right in. 
Um, anybody else need a Bible? If you, if you don't own a Bible and you like that one, keep it. Uh, we'd rather people have the Bible and read the Bible. That's a big deal for us here. Um, so now that you've got it, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. And we have a tradition here where uh, at this point we will read a, a portion of our passage together, but I'm going to invite you to stand if you are capable of doing so. And we're doing that to use our bodies to remind our minds how significant it is, the word that we are reading. We're going to read just a portion of our passage, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 6. And he, talking about Jesus, directed the multitude to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and he broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And he sent them away. Jesus, by your spirit, help me to do honor to you in this moment. I want so desperately for these people to love you, to know you, to be familiar with your ways. Take control of this time for your benefit and your greatness. Amen. You can be seated. So like I said, we are continuing in a series. We've been working through the gospel of Mark. Uh, and just in case you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I think it's somewhat helpful that you're aware of what has happened preceding the section that we're going to work with today. In, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus did something that seems pretty, uh, pretty similar to what I just read to you. Only that time he fed 5,000 people, which was a reference specifically stated that it was 5,000 of the men that were there. So there's an argument to indicate that Jesus may have fed as many as 10 to 15,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. If that wasn't impressive enough, then the disciples get in a boat, Jesus stays behind, and then he decides, all right, maybe, maybe I'll just walk on water. Not a big deal, right? I mean, we see it every day. Jesus is, he's like upping his game of impressive things. He's feeding 10 to 15,000 people with basically nothing, walking on water. Then he gets to chapter 7, and he's, he gets into a confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And he tells them, y'all are worried about how you look, but you should be worried about what's going on in your heart. Leading them to the reality that they couldn't fix their heart. And it was him and only him that was going to be able to fix it. And he proves it by then doing some impossible healings and showing that he has power over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. And then we get to this portion here of chapter 8. We obviously didn't read it all together, but I want to walk you through as close as I can, verse by verse, to help you understand this portion here. So in chapter 8, verses 1, it says, In those days again, when there was a great multitude, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. I want to stop there for a second. 
and admit to you at the outset, this, this is not the main point of the message. I always want the main point of a message that I share with people to be the main point of the text. But I would really hate to miss the opportunity to share with you where I personally got slapped in the face while studying this text. And it's in this verse right here. Jesus' first three words of chapter, I'm sorry, of verse two, where I feel what? Compassion. And why did he feel compassion? Because the people hadn't eaten in how many days? Yeah, I was showing you the answer. I shouldn't have done that. Okay. For three days. Do y'all remember how many days Jesus went without eating prior to the beginning of his ministry? Forty. Here's where I'm not like Jesus. I want to be. I want to be. But I have a tendency when I'm around people that are going through a little bit of difficulty and I know that I've like faced way more difficulty than them, my natural response normally is kind of like, dude, you need to like man up a little bit. Jesus, knowing that he went 40 days without eating, looks at a crowd that hasn't eaten for three, and instead of going like, yep, it's going to be uncomfortable when you follow me sometimes, he feels compassion on them. I am so unlike Jesus. But by his spirit, I hope to be growing in that. I just wanted to point that out to you. But let's see what happens. Jesus says in verse 3, If I send them away hungry to their home, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from a distance. And the disciples answered him, and their answer is, it, it's, it's bewildering. I, I know nobody uses that word, but sometimes words just slip out of my mouth that, that make sense to me. Be, like, I'm, I don't understand. The response is this. Where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in a desolate place? If you actually look at the original text, the Greek in which this passage is written, the emphasis, the word emphasis is the anyone. Where could anyone possibly get enough food for this many people? Um, do you remember like two chapters ago? And I like fed... 5,000, possibly 10 to 15,000. There's less people here from the section that we read. There's less people. And the emphasis of their response is, where could anyone possibly do this? Jesus' response is, is interesting. So it, it, it parallels so much the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that some people actually have tried to make the argument that this section of text is a mistake and is not intended to be there. I disagree with these people. I think that the feeding of the 4,000 was indeed a separate event, not just because the numbers were different where 12 were left over the feeding of the 5,000, but seven was left over in the feeding of the 4,000. My biggest argument will come later as we deal with a later section of chapter 8 where Jesus refers to these separate events as separate events and uses them to make a specific argument that will be the main point of our text. But that being said, Jesus does what Jesus does, that being the impossible. And by taking a small collection of bread and a couple of fish. He feeds 4,000 men, so possibly eight to 10,000 people. And look at verse eight. We're gonna circle back to this later, but I don't want you to miss it. 
And the people ate and were what? Satisfied. Satisfied. Jesus didn't just like throw them a snack that would be enough for them to get home, right? This was not just like the five veggie straws we give the kids in the nursery just to like get them to stop crying while you guys are sitting in here. This was a meal that was so sufficient for the people there. They were having like Thanksgiving style responses to it of like, oh, no, maybe a little more bread. Okay, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. And they were satisfied with what Jesus was able to provide for them. And after everyone there was completely satisfied, there was still leftovers. And that was enough to be able to safely send them away. Then we come to verse 10. And immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words. You're probably used to it by now if you've been here. Immediately, he enters a boat with his disciples and goes to the district of Dalmanutha. One of the only ways that Jesus could get a little bit of space sometimes from these multitudes that were constantly crowding him was to get into a boat that the multitudes couldn't get in and to just sail to a different spot. Immediately upon getting out, he gets into a confrontation with the Pharisees again. Verse 11. The Pharisees came out, and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. See, here's what you got to understand about this moment, about these interactions that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. By this point, Jesus' renown was accelerating his teaching platform. And he was regularly using that teaching platform to challenge the prevailing understanding of the Old Testament law. We saw it in chapter 7. Y'all are worried about all of your outside actions when your hearts aren't clean. Who was it that was responsible for teaching the prevailing understanding of the Old Testament? The Pharisees. People who were specifically paid, their entire life was built around their responsibility to teach people the Old Testament understanding of the law. For Jesus to show up on the scene and start challenging that was not just something that made them look bad in their jobs. It was a personal attack almost on them. Everything that they stood for was being questioned by this man. So they get in front of him and say, hey, Jesus... If you're going to show up to our town and start questioning our way of life, you better have come with some type of sign to prove that you've got the right to be able to do that. Here's where Jesus, again, is different than me. Because if it was me, I'd be like, all right, button up. Here we go. And I'd do some... Right? And everybody would be like, okay, all right. That's not how Jesus responds. Jesus instead, verse 12, sighs deeply. He has an emotional response. The best way that I could try to describe this word for you would be by showing you. Jesus' response was this. Ugh. Why? You see, Jesus was used to skepticism. He didn't necessarily have too much of a problem with skepticism. 
The thing is, is that this specific group of Pharisees was making demands of the guy that had actually instituted that which they had based their life on. They didn't find it sufficient. You think those Pharisees had heard of the signs that he had already done? Do you? Yeah. I know they didn't have TikTok to watch the videos, but they would have known that there was a guy walking around taking people who couldn't walk and making them walk, taking people who couldn't hear and making them hear, touching lepers. You don't do that. And suddenly their leprosy would be cleared. I'm sure they knew that he was capable of that kind of stuff. What were they asking for? I want a special song and dance from you, Jesus. I want you to adjust for me right now. You ever had that conversation with somebody before? Where you're sharing with them what God has done in your life, what God has taught you through scripture. And they're like, well, okay, that's cool for you. But like, maybe if God like opened up the sky and like physically appeared for me, then that would be enough for me. And the response is like, why do you feel like God's got to do a song and dance for you specifically? Why is that even fair? What gives you even the right to think that you could make that type of request? So Jesus sighs deeply with some frustration and responds this way. Why does this generation seek for a sign Truly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Matthew chapter 16 records this interaction and adds the portion that Mark didn't, uh, didn't actually add to there, saying no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. I want you to try to understand what it is that Jesus is saying in his response. Because Jesus uses the word this generation. And the way that he likes to use that word could be a little bit confusing if you compare it to the way that most people use that term today. Especially like in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about all this end time stuff, all this cataclysmic apocalyptic type stuff. And he says, even this generation will not pass away before all of these things occur. And it's caused people to develop like positions on the end times indicating that what Jesus was referring to actually was more of a reference to the fall of Rome and, and all of that kind of thing. Sometimes the range of words in the way that we use them is not necessarily the way that they were being used originally. When Jesus says the term this generation, he's not referring to like a small group uh, that were in front of him in terms of an age range in front of him. The way that he typically would use this phrase was actually more of a reference to a race. A race of people, an ethnic group. So when Jesus is using this term referring to the race of the Jews, he's saying, why is, why is it that Jews are always looking for a sign? This starts to border on a conversation that we kind of had to have last week in terms of Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. And we have to ask, like, is Jesus racist? And that's like the scariest thing to be called in culture today. Like, that would be bad for, for like, Jesus, uh, for Jesus' popularity if somehow I had to stand up here and tell you that Jesus was a racist. Jesus was definitely not a racist in the way that people have a tendency to use that word in terms of hatred, but Jesus was not afraid to talk about race. 
specifically when it came to the Jews. Because the Jews were the people of Israel. Do you remember where that word came from? The people of Israel? Nailed it. Jacob. It was a name change. Jacob literally, and I try not to use that word because it's so overused, but literally fought with Jesus. He got into a grappling battle with Jesus himself, and I know it was Jesus because of the Trinity, he's the only one capable of having a body. So Jacob and Jesus get into a grappling match. They're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the ground of what would later become Israel. And funny enough, Jesus is letting Jacob win. Why? I don't know. Maybe just to mess with him. Sometimes when I do jujitsu, I like to do that when I roll with guys and I'll let them win for a while and then I'll beat them. And sure enough, that's what Jesus does with Jacob. He lets him win for a while and then touches his hip, crippling Jacob. But Jacob, being the stubborn one that he is, grasps on and goes, I'm not letting go. So God changes Jacob's name to Israel which means one who fights with God. And this becomes the foundation for the people of Israel. Jesus had a long history of working with people who fought against him and was constantly having to deal with this back and forth battle with his people that he had chosen and said, I'm going to use you and you're going to be my message to the world. And had told them from the outset, it's actually going to open up to other people too. But they, they didn't want to necessarily listen to that and kind of close things in and kept it to themselves. Jesus was used to this fight. But that didn't mean that it was a comfortable fight. I love these little emotional insights into it. That Jesus had some frustration of having to keep having the same fight over and over and over again with his people. And then, interestingly enough, did Jesus do further signs that these people would have seen? Yeah, he did. But he specifically told them about one sign that he was going to give them. I told you what it was. It was in Matthew chapter 16, the sign of Jonah. Jonah, the story of a guy who also fought with God, so much so that he went in the exact opposite direction of where God told him to go that culminates in him being cast in the sea, eaten by some giant sea creature, and it's only after being in there for three days that he goes, fine, I'll go. And God goes, okay, vomit time, boom. And he heads over to Nineveh, and the entire community repents. All of that being a forecast of the Savior that would later come, being in the ground three days, or on the third day rising, providing the opportunity of repentance for all mankind. Jesus said, if you're really looking for a sign, hang on, something big's about to happen. Pointing to his own resurrection. Verse 13, after leaving them, he again embarked, getting back on the boat, 
went to the other side. Now, the next scene is the most interesting scene to me. Because if you were to try to depict it as a movie, there's, there would be two things that you would have to visually depict simultaneously. One, look at verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So one of the scenes that you'd depict in your movie would be the disciples kind of over in one side of the boat going, hey, uh, Thomas, did you bring lunch? No, that was Bart's job. No, it wasn't. I told Mark to get it, right? And so this argument is going in the back where they're all suddenly realizing we got nothing to eat. But in the meantime, and you'll see why in a moment when we start to read verse 15, Jesus is replaying the conversation in his mind that he just had with the Pharisees. You ever done that before? I know not everybody's a horrified overthinker like myself. But if I have a conversation with you, to the extent that my memory will allow, this is one of the benefits of starting to get old, like I start to just forget stuff. But to the extent that my memory will allow, I'm going to have that conversation with you again, probably two or three times in my brain, and start to think about all the things I wish I would have said or something that I wish I wouldn't have said. Jesus is replaying this in his mind, this conversation that he has with the Pharisees, and it's almost like he like snaps out of that daydream and hears them arguing about, well, where are we going to get bread? Jesus gives them precisely what they need in verse 15. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware. There's like a specific division between those terms, watch out and beware. Each of them would have been fine on its own, but Jesus wants to double it up. Watch out. Beware, look out of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven or the yeast of Herod. As Jesus was replaying in his mind the conversation and he hears them talking about bread, he goes to an analogy that he loves to use. He loves to talk about yeast, something small that then pervades an entire substance. Jesus sometimes use this analogy positively, but more often than not, like to use it negatively, this one definitely being there, saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. It's only from the preceding texts that we know what it is that he's been talking about, the yeast of the Pharisees, those who had become so spiritually distorted that they were focusing on their outward appearance rather than their substance of submission to God. Jesus telling them desperately, you gotta watch out for this fake religion, thinking that if you just do the right things, it's gonna square you away with God. Watch out. Watch out for the yeast of Herod. The last time I was able to speak with you, I was able to tell you one of the stories of Herod and how he beheaded John the Baptist. Herod, who was this fake political sellout king that was not really a real king. He had no real commitment to God, but because he was of the ethnicity of the Jewish, the special group, and the Romans saw fit to give him power and luxury, he decided to just live it up. Jesus says, watch out. 
Don't be thinking that being a part of some special group squares you away and that your actions don't matter. Watch out. Verse 16, do they get it? Do they, do they listen? And so they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So it's like Jesus is going, watch out. Watch out. This is important. And they're like, okay, Jesus, I, I get it, but my blood sugar is a little too low. We're going to need to solve this problem first before we can address whatever this other thing is that you want us to watch. I know it's important, but we, I, I need my snacks. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to listen to you effectively. Look at Jesus' response. It's magical. And Jesus aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? If I were to translate this to modern English, Jesus' question is, which is it? Are you dumb or are you evil? Which is it? Why don't you get it? He quotes Ezekiel in verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Ezekiel 12, verse 2, you live in the midst of a rebellious house, God says to his people. You have eyes to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus had even used this verse before in front of his disciples in Matthew 13 when all these people had come to see the Jesus show and Jesus starts teaching them in parables and afterwards his disciples come to him and go, hey, um, why can't you be a little bit more straightforward? Like, why do you keep teaching them with these parables? And Jesus says, because they are those with eyes that do not see and ears, but they do not hear. Jesus turns now to the disciples who had heard that before and says, so are you those people? Are you? He tells them instead, you've got to navigate your current concern by remembering what happens. And then he asks them, when I broke, verse 19, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Here's what I imagine the response was. I don't know if you've all had the, the opportunity, the um, the uh, opportunity, I don't like that word. If you've been in a moment where you're yelling at your kids about something that they know the right answer, but they're not doing the right thing, and you ask them, like, are you supposed to take candy out of the cupboard without asking me first? No. I think that's what this was like. Do you remember... When I broke with the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces were picked up? And they answered, 12. <laughs> and, see separate events, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. <laughs> and then Jesus asked them, so what do you not understand? What, what, what don't you get? That's where Mark leaves it. 
That's what Mark likes to do in his gospel. It's just like throw something down and then move on to the next thing. We don't get a disciple response. We don't get a, a hug from Jesus. Hey, sorry. We, we, nothing. It just ends. Now, I know in a room like this, there's a wide spectrum of where you're at in your relationship with God. And so what I'm about to say, I'm going to try the best that I possibly can to temper it along the lines of what I talked about from verse 2. I want to try to be compassionate when I talk about this. And part of the way I'm going to do that is I want to specify who I'm about to talk to. If you are just kind of testing the waters, if you're just like figuring this thing out, you've only been around church a little bit, or you're just kind of coming back, and you don't really understand anything, so glad you're here. We're so grateful that you're here. I'm not talking to you right now. But there are people in this room that have been following Jesus now for decades. Some of you, a really long period of time. And I think at this point, the message is pretty clear what it is that Jesus would want to say to us. At what point are you finally going to start living like you actually believe God is going to provide for your every need? And I want to be as compassionate as I possibly can when I state this. And please know that if it feels like I'm about to browbeat you, I'm browbeating myself because I've been going through this as well. But why is it that you keep worrying about your needs? To keep it as general as I possibly can, as we've gone through this pandemic, I've been in front of people that have been following Christ for 30 years that are suddenly worried about losing their jobs. Why? What do you, what do you need a job for? I mean, I know that it's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. Again, I want to be as compassionate as I possibly can, but... Do you remember what Jesus said to you from Matthew 6? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not worry what you shall eat or, for your, or, or your, what you're going to drink or for your body and your clothing. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and he will care for your needs. That's what he said. At what point are we really going to start living like it? It, it doesn't make any sense if we understand this to worry about our jobs, to worry about the condition of our business, to worry about our health. Am I going to get sick? Am I going to die from this? Am I not going to die? How, what do I got to do to keep living a long period of time? It doesn't make sense for us to worry if, when things don't socially or politically go our way. It doesn't make any sense to be worried about our kids all the time. Again, I want to say this as softly as I possibly can, but I don't want you to miss what Jesus is saying in verse 21. Do you not yet understand? I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up because I'm never necessarily a big fan of browbeating people in church. Like somehow you don't feel like you get your money's worth at church unless I make you feel bad about yourself. The truth is sometimes we need to let the Holy Spirit make us feel bad about ourselves a little bit. But let me try to give you the hopeful side of what it is that I'm saying as a way of closing. I already pointed it out to you. I'm going to point it out to you again. 
in verse 8. And they ate and they were what? Satisfied. Friends, I'm telling you, when the people received from Jesus that which they needed, they were satisfied. And as a result of it, they knew that they could trust him. And if they continued to seek him, that he would continue to satisfy those desires. God's not just going to give you a little bit. Now, if he does anything for you like he does for me, he may not give you what you want, but he will satisfy you. And if you trust him, you know that Jesus stands before you compassionately, but he will honestly say to you in this moment, don't be dumb. Stop worrying about all the nonsense that the world worries about. Join him in his program and let him take care of the details. I meant it when I said that I'm affected by this too. So I want to finish our time by allowing you an opportunity to respond to God. So I'm going to be silent for a little bit. What I want you to do is to open your heart just in the quietness of yourself. Open your heart to God and say, God, what is it that I shouldn't be worrying about? And then give it to him. Tell him you're sorry and give it to him. And I'll pray to close. Jesus, I'm sorry for trying to be such a control freak all the time. And like my brother who prayed, I believe, but help my unbelief. I I trust in you. Just help me with my distrust. Forgive me for my distrust. I know that you will take care of my needs. And I praise you because I know the people in this room, if they will trust you too, that you will take care of their needs. And we will not be worried about the things that worry everyone else. We will only be looking for opportunities to spread the message of your greatness and to praise you for the things that you have done. We submit to you in this and ask for your power to continue to live with trust and faith because you've proven yourself faithful. And we thank you for that. Amen. Let's stand as we worship in this closing song. Won't you be my life? 
Will you be my life? Oh, I surrender. One day is better with 